chapter 3, of course, fits into this greater lesson of God's providence and all the various themes that are, are throughout this book. But very simply, Ruth chapter 3 is an ancient love story. Ruth 3 evidences that all things fall under God's sovereign control and crafting down to the very nitty-gritty of human relationships, even the minor details of a love story. Please hear God's word as I read Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said to her, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your careful and loving watch care over everything that comes to pass, even the minor details of a love story. Lord, I pray that you would teach us eternal truths from this story, that those truths might grip our hearts, that we might bring glory to you in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I began this series in Ruth chapter 1 with uh, introducing or further explaining a wider doctrine of the Bible called the providence of God. See, the providence of God is really the underlying lesson of this book of Ruth, as is the case with other books in the scriptures. But there are many other things we learn as we see God providentially work things out. Uh, but just as a reminder, even as we read this love story, remember just a few points from our Westminster Confession on God's providence. That is the sum total of what the Bible says about this doctrine, not just what Ruth says or displays. In the first section of that chapter, our confession says well and biblically 
God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. I like what it says here because it doesn't leave anything to guess. Not just the things we think are big and important and identifiable, but even the very details, even those wrapped up into a relationship between a man and a woman, all the butterflies that are in one's stomach, all the unanswered questions, the awkwardness, uh, the prospects, uh, the excitement, all those things fall under the providential watch care of God. In the third section in our confession on the chapter about providence, it says, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So it doesn't matter what it is. The wiles of a woman, brothers, or whatever that guy's thinking, ladies, is all under the providential watch care of God. Even those details, every one of them. This chapter is uh, part of a bigger lesson in providence for sure. It wraps together all the different uh, range of emotions and experience that have come in the first two chapters. But at its heart, it reminds us that God's providence includes all things, even the dynamics of a human love story like the one we have here. Uh, Sherry and I often reminisce about how we progress from friendship to engagement. And at the time, we were filled with wondering and anxiety and questions. But now looking back, we can clearly see the hand of God in all of that process leading up to our being engaged and then eventually married. I think this story of how Ruth and Boaz came to be engaged might even seem a bit weird to us 3,000 years after because some of the norms are different in those days as they are today. But I think the emotions and the wondering and the sense of humanity you get when you read this, they, those things transcend the generations. Let's consider as we look at this story, there are really three scenes. The first scene is this this kind of neat little interchange between the world-wise woman, Naomi, and this young woman, Ruth, uh, and he's basically saying how to catch Boaz in a good kind of way. Then the second larger scene is what happens when Ruth and Boaz meet and they're interchanged. That's the balance of the chapter. And then the last few verses, the scene goes back to uh, the mother-in-law finding out what happened with Ruth. I would submit to you that kind of thing happens all the time. Now, it's not always mother with daughter, but sometimes buddy with buddy or girlfriend with girlfriend, talking, uh, planning, devising, scheming, and then going, and it never works out exactly the way something gives your nerves or something happens. It never happens exactly like you plan it. Then you go back and report, right? I mean, that happens. I bet you if you thought of your own situation or maybe you've been in this kind of situation, uh, you can see how real, really normal this is. But you would ask the question, especially the first scene, is what's happening here? Is it redeeming or is it scheming? Or is it both? Remember the ladies, uh, in regard to Naomi's advice, the ladies had not been in, back to Israel very long. Naomi had been gone for 10 years and now had come back with this new Moabite uh, daughter-in-law who had, who had grasped the covenant of God, was a believer, trusted in the Redeemer, the, the ultimate Redeemer of her and the nation of Israel. And so she's there, people have heard of her, the talking has gone on, and she has gotten into the harvest time and she's gleaning, she's been given special privileges by Boaz who notices her almost immediately. And so three or four weeks, maybe six weeks have gone by, she's been given special status, she's employed the whole harvest, she's able to glean with Boaz's young women, but the harvest is now coming to a close. We know this because the men are gathered at the threshing floor with all their sheaves of grain and they're starting to thresh it out and make piles. They're getting ready to store it and to sell it. So we know the harvest is almost over. Naomi looks and says, 
she's secured during this time of gleaning, but who knows what's going to happen after. And she puts two and two together and says, she's going to have to make a move if something's going to happen between her and Boaz. But there's more to it. I don't want to make it sound as though Naomi's just scheming here. Uh, it's maybe more of a sanctified scheming. Uh, but what she's doing is saying, I don't want to, uh, this poor woman who has followed me and shown such devotion and character uh, to be left alone. And so I want to see her rest. And that's what it says in verse 1 and 2. Look at Naomi saying what she says. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. One does not have to be a relationship expert to see where Naomi is going with this advice. She is simply saying, listen, we're not getting any younger. You need to find someone. I don't want to see you alone your whole life. You're a young woman. She's probably around 30. Naomi's probably 45 to 50. And she's saying to, saying to Ruth, now is the time, now is the time to seek shelter under someone's wings, a, a way of saying to get married, to be in someone's household. I don't want to see you live harvest to harvest begging. It's very difficult, very difficult for anyone in these days, let alone a woman uh, who is from outside of the country to try to come, come in and sustain herself. So Naomi says, what about Boaz? He thought about this more fully. You see what's developing. Not much really has changed, I would submit to you, over the last 3,000 years. We all know exactly what's happening. Look what she says, the the further instructions, the advice that Naomi gives to Ruth in verse 3. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. The wiles of a woman at work. And we're suckers for it, got to admit. Naomi says to get gussied up, bathe, put a touch of perf perfume on. It doesn't say this in the Hebrew, but really what it's saying is put on a nice outfit, the one that brings out the color in your eyes. And if you want to catch a fly, you've got to use a little honey, honey. That's what she's really saying. Not very sanctified, is it? Can't believe the nerve of Naomi giving such forward advice to a young woman of God. Notice what else she says after saying what she does in verse 3. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Don't go out in the open. Wait until he's satisfied. He had just enough to drink that he would doze off and then go lay down, down by his feet. Now, in this day, we'd say that is dis that's disgusting. Why would she want to go lay near the guy's feet after he's been working all day? Uh, in that day, that, had, that was a sign of submission to someone. That was a sign of putting yourself at that person's disposal, saying, I am your, I want to be yours. And so it really is tantamount to a wedding proposal. Go and lie down at his feet. You say, oh, that is weird. What, what a weird set of circumstances God would use. But remember, God's providence includes all things, even the dynamics of human love stories. I want you to think for a moment, especially those of you who are married, about the particular way that you met your spouse. I'll bet you that there are a lot of strange things, and only you and your spouse know that went on during your courtship, that time that led up to being engaged and then married. Do you not agree that these things are still part of the providential plan of God? Even though we work and we seemingly scheme and we plan, God still superintends over these things. In fact, I, one of the best illustrations I can give you is just uh, Sherry and, and mine ex my experience. Uh, we met in college, and I really uh, was looking for a free ride down for spring break to Florida. Uh, totally broke, so I thought the, the concert band was going down to Florida for spring break, so I'll sign up to do their sound and lights. So my buddy and I signed up. 
Well, that meant we had to go on the, the fall tour first to build up to the spring tour, which was like in Iowa or something like this. And so we went on this tour, and I noticed almost immediately uh, the flute player who was Sherry. Now, she wasn't playing flute the first time I noticed her. In fact, she was throwing a football around outside of the tour bus. I said, that's a woman right there. <laughs> Tight spiral, did a great, nice throw. I said, and then she played flute. I just was attracted to her immediately. And so uh, we began a friendship. And early on in the friendship, I remember her mentioning something about her only going to school for that first year and then was going to go back to go to the school that was close to her home. So immediately the pretense was gone. I figured she wasn't going to stay around. And so didn't have... Uh, didn't really have intentions to develop the relationship more. We just became friends, and that really was one of the most healthy things that happened in our relationship. But as time went on, I, became, I started liking her more and more and thinking, oh, I wish she was staying here. And so as we, uh, we both worked for the, the physical plant of the school, and so she, we signed up to clean at this conference I alluded to last week. And so at late night, we would go clean this place. And so just before this, maybe two weeks before this, I saw her in uh, the game room with her friend, her roommate, and I, I challenged her to a game of foosball. And the winner would be taken out by the loser to this hamburger joint that charges uh, $2.25 for a hot dog, fries, and a shake. So we destroyed them in the game. I mean, I left nothing to guess. We just, just wiped them out. I don't think they got a point. So I wanted to cash in, but they shot out of there before I could, do, could cash in on my side of the bet. We'd won, so that means they had to take us out. Well, shortly before we had this cleanup sign-up time, or this time to, to clean up that we'd signed up for, I saw her and, and asked her when she planned on making good on her side of the bet. And she said, well, I'll talk to my friend. I said, well, yeah, that's okay. You don't have to bring your friend either. You know, you can, you can take me alone. <laughs> so I'm working. I'm, my, they, they, and I don't know that she immediately noticed that as different, but at any rate, we started cleaning at the church, and she found a quarter on the floor. And she was so proud that she found a quarter. She was just teasing me by saying, I found a quarter, and I bet you by the end of the week, I'll find all the money necessary to take you out on, on this, uh, for this burger, and I won't have to pay anything for it. It's kind of needling me a little bit in those cute kind of ways that we do. So throughout the week, sure enough, she found all the change necessary plus some. And so what she didn't realize, though, is that I was the one who was laying the change out all over the place. <laughs> and she was finding it and coming to me and telling me, and my buddy knew that I was doing it. And, she, and the last quarter almost gave it away because I put it right in her shoe, and she found the last one. So anyways, we're at the, the burger joint, and I got to tell her that I was the one who did that, and she was pretty, pretty surprised. And we left the burger place, and we went to a really nice place and got dessert. And at that point, she saw what I was up to. Do you think that was in the sovereign plan of God, all those little funny little things that we did and the little butterflies we had in our stomach, the questions and the wondering? I think all of it is. Every bit of it is part of God's providence, every bit of it. I would even submit to you, even when we make mistakes, God does not fall out of control somehow. He even redeems these things. And here we have a picture, an interesting, kind of a weird story even, about as to how she would propose to Boaz like this. But I want you to remember, what we're learning from this book and we see throughout Scripture is that God's providence includes all things, even the dynamics of a human love story. Please notice there's a concept introduced here again, the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Chapter 4 really brings us to a light for us to understand what's happening here and what is being said, especially by Ruth in verse 9, notice in uh, the, the 20th uh, verse of chapter 2, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So she uses this word redeemer in reference to Boaz. Then the first verse of the chapter we're studying today, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? 
So she's referring again to this fact of Boaz's position as a potential redeemer. Then verse 9, towards the middle of this chapter again, Boaz in response to Ruth, who are you? And then she answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This particular word redeemer, used by Naomi in 2.20, and then uh, again, Ruth in 3.9, is the Hebrew word goel. And it literally means family guardian or kinsman redeemer. This is a, a provision in God's law that allows for another man to redeem the name of his brother if, if his brother should die. And it could have to do with land, it could have to do with property, but it also particularly can relate to the man's wife who dies and the possibility of redeeming her for the purpose of continuing the family name. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So when Naomi asks Ruth, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were, she's referring to the concept of kinsman redeemer. Boaz is recognized as a goel to the family of Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi and the father-in-law of Ruth. Ruth could appeal to him to safeguard the posterity of Elimelech's family and take her in marriage may seem forward to us, but it was regarded as proper in that day. One commentator says it well. If Boaz did not fulfill his duty towards Elimelech, though he was now deceased, then the direct family name of Elimelech would perish. Perpetuating the family name of Elimelech in every man in Israel was thought to be an important duty. These protections showed how important it was to God to preserve the institution of family in Israel, and you could say in the church. Naomi gives her advice. Ruth doesn't hesitate. Not even for a moment, but rather says in verse 5, all that you say I will do. And Ruth then takes action. So we shift to the second scene and ask this question. And it's a good question to ask. Is this really about love or is this about lust? What is this about? Starting in verse 6, we can ask the question, were Ruth's actions appropriate? What was she doing? Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now what she does uh, has to be understood in light of the time of year it was. The men had taken the sheaves, the landowners and their workers, taken their sheaves to the threshing floor. It was a common place, usually on high ground so that the wind struck it in a very definite way. And so they would take the sheaves and they would thresh out the grain. Then they would take the piles of the threshed out grain and they would get a pitchfork-like object and throw it up in the air. And the wind would take out the chaff and the stalks and the grain would fall, the hard kernels of the seeds would fall down to the ground on the threshing floor. And all these owners would do this. And after hours and hours of work, they'd get piles and piles of grain. They would add that to a bigger pile of grain that they own. And undoubtedly, they worked all day and then they all had a meal together afterwards. But none of them trusted each other that much, so they slept at their pile of grain. They just did. That's the practical reality. At some point, they were going to take it to their, wherever their homestead was and store some of it for their own use, or they would sell grain that was extra. But during this process of winnowing, they stayed put right there. That's where they all stood, and they stood by their pile. And so what Ruth was to do is wait for him to finish his meal. It doesn't say he got stone drunk. It says he just drank enough to be happy. And so he laid down at the end of the pile and fell asleep immediately. And so she waited till after he fell asleep 
Then she went, and, and he probably had one cover on him, uncovered his feet, and laid at his feet just to wait. Because what did, what did Naomi say? He'll tell you what to do. Now, were Ruth, Ruth's actions appropriate? There are some commentators that suggest that really this is just euphemistic language for some kind of a sexually forward move on the part of Ruth, and that uh, uncovering the feet is really just a euphemism for sexual activity. I find this hard to reconcile with, with the text itself and with the majority of the evidence. Let me just give you some reasons why I think what she did was appropriate. Weird maybe to us because of the time 3,000 years ago, but definitely still in the lines of appropriateness. First of all, the plain reading of the text says very clearly, she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. That's what it says she did. It's true, this could be a euphemism for something more, but examples of an exact euphemism like this are not easily found in antiquity. There really is nothing about this passage that explicitly claims anything happened except what it says, that she came and lay down at his feet until morning and then left early. Second reason, the Bible doesn't hide ugly sexual sin if that's what's going on, does it? I mean, you don't have to go anywhere to find, very far to find out what happens. In all its ugliness, God puts it there. There's no good reason for him to treat this with kick gloves if that's what happens. He's going to say it the way it is, as he always does. Look at all the various instances. Lot and his daughters, Abraham and Hagar, the patriarchs and their multiple wives, Solomon and his multiple wives. If Ruth were doing something sinful, the author would just say so. It would not be caused to thwart God's redemptive plan, even if she were. But in this case, I think there is actually for us a, a wonderful example of a healthy relationship that we don't often see among ourselves or among those characters in Scripture that we've come to know and study. Third reason, she seems to be simply lying there when Boaz awakens to find her. Nothing's going on. He wakes up at midnight, probably several hours later, to find her there. So again, the plain reading and just what, the way the story plays out seems to indicate what happened is exactly the way it says. Fourthly, I would just say this, and I think this is powerful, uh, powerful evidence against anything inappropriate happening. Boaz clearly wants to marry Ruth. We see that early on. There is no good reason for a popular man like Boaz and a woman who everyone knows to defile their future marriage by acting in this way at this moment. It just defies the rest of the logic that they have used to come to this point. I know that sometimes logic gets messed up when we get in situations. However, there's so much working together here that would convince them at this moment and based on the dialogue that this would be nothing but a disastrous to act in a way that would defile themselves. Finally, the character, in Bo the character, and fifthly, I'd say, the character of Boaz and Ruth argues against a sinful action. Even if Ruth had sinful intentions, let's suppose she did for a moment, it would be left to Boaz's discretion. Our previous introduction to Boaz shows him as a God-honoring man. And what does he say when he finds her and she speaks to him? Lord bless you. There's a discussion that goes on that honors God. While I would not view the advice of Naomi or the action of Ruth something that would, we would emulate today, it's dangerous to do something like this. Matthew Henry says it well. He doesn't think that anything wrong happened, but he makes clear that this is not a model for how we would go about meeting someone. It's just a dangerous situation. But notice verse 8, how this transpires. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So not only do I think Ruth did something that was appropriate, she then showed what the reason was. She came to propose marriage to him. That's what she's saying. Will you marry me? 
And she's saying it on the basis of a biblical norm that you would redeem someone who had lost their husband to perpetuate his name because you were related to him. Spread your wings over your servant. And this is a beautiful reference or a beautiful metaphor that God uses later in the Old Testament to describe his relationship with his people. We're his bride. And then using the same metaphor of spreading your wings, which literally means spread your garment over me. Give me your protection. In Ezekiel 16.8, God is talking about his people, the church, Israel in the Old Testament. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were, at, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So by Ruth saying, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's saying, will you please marry me? Ruth is asking Boaz to fulfill his role of kinsman, redeemer, and marrier. Ruth's actions are clear. I think they're appropriate. Let's consider Boaz in this exchange. Look at verse 10 regarding his actions. What was he doing? He said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Keep in mind, Ruth is probably 25 to 30. Boaz is probably 45 to 50. There is a considerable age difference between the two. And what Boaz says here is so wonderfully human. He's saying, God bless you for pursuing me when you have so many others to choose from. It's a very humble admission in his part. He recognizes her attractiveness of character at least. We don't know what she looks like physically, but we definitely know what her character is like. And she could basically find another husband. She's not personally the one under the obligation to marry someone in her husband's family. That's up to the men of the family to perpetuate. She could have gone after a young man or some other person. But instead, wanting to honor this in her own family and genuinely being attracted to Boaz, she pursues him. And he says, bless you for this. And humanly speaking, it just feels good to have someone think that you're something. I thank God every day that I've got someone who thinks that I'm something. You all, I, I care what you think of me, but what I really care about is what my wife thinks about me and what my children think about me. That's what's most important. That's what gives me the most encouragement besides my identity in Christ. So you have this wonderful statement in his response of the half-sleeping Boaz. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And this is what I love. Naomi knew what she was doing. She knew that if she would get those two in, have an audience with one another, the rest would take care of itself, right? That's how it happens. Just got to get, get him in that spot. That's what I think Naomi meant when she said, he'll tell you what to do. Naomi knew, just if I just get these two together, I know it'll all work out. And that's what happened. They, there wasn't often times where men and women would be alone in this culture. And so to have that moment had to be carefully crafted. And there it was, and the moment was upon it. And Ruth says, spread your wings over me. In other words, will you please marry me? Be the kinsman redeemer. It's such a deep spiritual truth hidden behind that really human sense and feeling. Boaz has given Ruth, obviously given Ruth some thought. Because he, he sees her and he says, and probably thought there's no chance but he says, bless you for this. And then verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So he responds so wonderfully to her. He's thought about it, but probably thought he really didn't have a chance. And now she's saying there is a chance. And he's like, yes. I don't know how you say hubba hubba in old Mid-Eastern, uh, Near Eastern, but he's excited. He's thinking, this is great. Bless you. But something comes into it. He says, essentially, yes, I want to marry you, verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. 
And then it comes to a halt. I mean, everything is going so good. It's coming. The audience is watching and saying, wow, they're going to get married. This is great. And then he says, but there's a redeemer nearer than I. The man that he is of his word recognizes that legally there is someone close, uh, in closer relationship with Elimelech than him that really has first right to redeem her. You know, he could have just gone for it, right? I mean, who would have really said anything in the long history, especially the time of the judges? But yet he recognizes as a man of honor that he is not the one that has first opportunity to redeem. So he tells her, that we have to first go the right and correct route. Now, I want to point out that I think something important uh, here needs to be said. I think it's okay for a woman, in this case, uh, to basically say, I'm available, or I can marry you. But it's of essential importance that the man take the lead of the relationship at this point, and that's exactly what Boaz does. He says, now that he recognizes her desire to be married, he has the same desire, now he's the one who takes lead in the relationship. And he then says, or starts, if you will, plotting it out. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And you know what he's thinking. I hope this guy is not willing to redeem her. That's what he's thinking. There's no question. Because he's excited about this prospect. I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And I really believe that lie down to the morning is kind of this sense in which you have people that love each other and they recognize that their life can totally change if this guy says that he will redeem. So they just lay there seizing the moment for those hours and I'm sure they didn't sleep a bit. Something beautiful about the humanity of that. They want to hang on to the moment. You can't stop time, can you? But just stay here for tonight and just make sure you leave before it gets too light. In fact, you know she was, they don't have alarm clocks. So I'm sure that they didn't sleep, and then it's just the right time as the sun starts to crest, she gets up and gets ready to go. And that's where we have the ending of chapter 3. Ending without resolution as such, but with anxious planning and waiting. Ruth and Boaz had just had the talk. Boaz didn't have a ring to give her. There were more questions than there were answers, and without a doubt there was anxiety and waiting for resolution. And by the way, brothers in the house who might be considering marriage someday the biblical way to get engaged is to give your fiancé several pounds of flour. Right? So just explain to your fiancé that a ring is not biblical, not like pounds of grain. Then come to premarital counseling immediately because you're going to be in big trouble if you go that route and give out pounds of flour. In all seriousness, that, a ring wasn't something they did in those days. And Boaz, looking around, he couldn't leave uh, the, the threshing floor. He gives her what was valuable to him, most valuable to him. That's why he was there. So she lay at his feet, in verse 14, until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went up into the city. Boaz thought, I want her to know that what we were talking about last night was just not emotional. I really want to marry her. So she gave him, in a sense, a dowry of such uh, to give and say, I am committed to you, and bring this back to your mother-in-law. Show her how committed I am. And this is a lot of grain that she was bringing, as much as she probably could carry. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz is smart, isn't he? He's keeping the mother-in-law happy here. Given this grain, don't want, this is, I want to 
make a respectful statement to her about how I value you. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. One back at him, because Naomi knows what a man's, he's going he's gonna to go crazy till he can get this matter settled. Don't worry, Ruth, this won't take long. He's going to be running to the town the next morning to find out if this guy will redeem you or not. Beautiful picture. Who can relate with this kind of anxious waiting that goes on now? And unfortunately, we won't be able to resolve this till, chat, till three, four more weeks, because I won't be here for two weeks, and then, I'll, and then Lawrence will be preaching the third week. So we have to wait till then. And don't read anymore, because we're going to wait until we see. And your pastor didn't just tell you not to read the Bible, but you know what I mean. Hold up so we can look at it together and see how this wonderful resolution happens in this great story. But I want to say now, just in closing, as a point of application that I think can be gleaned from this, especially for those of you who are still looking to be married. There's really something beautiful about the way in which Ruth and Boaz carry out their romance. And the reason why is that they are acting in fidelity to God and towards one another. This gives them a clarity of God's will that you don't have when you're acting sinfully. Now, I'm not saying that there's not questions and emotions that run rampant. That's what God places in us to make us attracted to one another and enjoy that relationship. But if we're sinfully uh, partaking of things that we shouldn't partake of, the, we won't have a clarity about God's will for us. We'll be all confused about why do I want to marry them? Is it because I feel guilty? I have to now? And all the things that you would not want to be asking when you're asking a question about whether I should spend the rest of my life with someone. But because they acted in fidelity to one another and to God, they can enjoy a certain clarity about what it is God wants for them. I would submit this to you, that this will be for you too. If you act in fidelity with what God has clearly said for how you should conduct yourself, I assure you that you'll have a clarity about whether the person is really the one you should marry much more than someone who indulges in things way before they should. All you have to do is look at the scriptures to see this illustrated. Every time someone chooses illicit, especially illicit sexual activity before marriage or in, outside the bounds of their own marriage, nothing but horror happens. Uh, Abraham rushing to have a child with Hagar instead of his wife as God told him. Abraham, Hagar, and Sarai, all extreme pain as a result. And the pain that still goes on today is that the sons of Ishmael are the Arab nations and the sons of Isaac are, is the Jewish nation today as far as progeny goes, and they're still fighting. Uh, this is directly related to rushing ahead of God's will. Is it outside of God's sovereign plan? No. But the personal pain experience, because they did not keep fidelity to God and the person that God gave them, is very obvious. The various polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, not one has a positive thing com com commended towards it. David and his illicit affair with Bathsheba go down the list. Even such sinful actions can still obviously fall on, they do fall under the pale of God's greater providence. Still, personally, you experience nothing but great pain when you choose to dishonor God's clear commands in this. Honor God in how you relate to the opposite sex. Very simply, such, such effort, such obedience will be met with clarity concerning God's will when you need that clarity the most. Ruth and Boaz felt the butterflies experienced the anxiety of excitement of falling in love. The full appreciation of this experience happened for them because they were faithful to God in how they related to one another before marriage. Brothers and sisters, this interaction between Ruth and Boaz is certainly packed with juicy intrigue, human emotion, and expectation. And keep in mind, it's part of a greater love story, the love story about God and his people. We'll have to wait a few weeks for the climatic conclusion of this, but for now, suffice it to say once more, God's providence includes all things even the very dynamics of a human love story like this. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your caring providence. And Lord, we, reading chapter one, we thought nothing good could happen in this family. Nothing good could come from this. 
But even at the end of that chapter, Lord, you showed yourself uh, to be always working in all these situations, even the hard, uh, the hard, difficult providence. And Lord, now we see how you're redeeming all these things in this wonderful, beautiful relationship between a man and a woman. Lord, but let us not forget the greater message, the love you have for your church. Lord, help us, your bride, to adorn ourselves with Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to go from this place changed, more sensitive to your word and your teaching. Help us to share this with all who come in contact with us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.